Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The True Crime Society podcast contains adult themes and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the True Crime Society podcast with Stephanie and Olivia. It is February 17th, Thursday. It is 4.30 here in New York. What time is it in Australia? We got to know. 8.30 in the morning. You. I know. I've just, I was just saying to you, I've accomplished a lot this morning and it's already it's only 8.30, so I can relax after this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a day. I feel like I always mm. say that, but it's always been a fucking day. Yeah. We're just going to get right into it, because like we always say, it's a big one. They're always big ones, but it really is another big one. Yeah. One day we're going to be like, it's a small one. <laughs> so just a mini one, mini one this week, but no, another big one. Yeah, well, you guys should like the big ones anyways, at least. <laughs> so for this one, we are doing it on Susan Powell, which we honestly probably, if anyone asked us a month ago, like, hey, are you going to do a podcast episode on Susan Powell? We would have been like, um, probably not, because it's been done a billion times there's tons of things you could watch or read or listen to on it um there's a really good very in-depth podcast on it called cold that you should all listen to if it if you yeah. listen to this episode and you want to know way 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 more check that was that probably out. one of the best podcasts i've ever listened to it's a series just on this case like i was yeah, thinking that very, too. very in-depth it's like I would love to be able to do a podcast like that, but the amount of time and research—I don't remember how long he said it took him—but it would take probably at least a year just to compile yeah. all of that. I was going to but, say, like, I thought it was years. He'd been working. I was going to say years, years too, <laughs> but yeah. I second guessed myself. But anyways, we'll mention it again. But if you find yourself interested, that's a great podcast to check out. Tons of info. Anyways, back to back to what I was saying before I derailed myself. We probably would have never thought we'd do an episode on this, but there was a small possible, well, it could be a big update. We don't know yet. There was a, a little mini update and so many people messaged us like, oh my God, do you have a podcast episode on this? Or like, I've never heard of this case. I really want to know more about it. Have you guys done it yet? And we were like, fuck it. We might as well if this this what the people want. <laughs> yeah. I, like for me, this is up there with the Maura Murray case. Like there's a few cases that just always stick with you and that I always believe will probably never be solved. So this is up there with some of the bigger ones for me too. I'm like obsessed with this case. I, yeah. I, I'll forget about it for a while, but then I'll just rediscover it kind of and be like, I have to know everything again. When I started looking into it again for this episode, I just, I think I said to you, I had forgotten so much of the crazy, like it's crazy, yes. so much of the crazy details and the crazy things that happened. Yeah. And like, I was re-listening to Cold today just to kind of like refresh my memory. And I'm just going to like tell everyone right now. I know everyone's like, we haven't heard the story yet. But Josh Powell is the most fucking insufferable human being on the face of the earth. There's re audio recordings of him. I'll put one right here, an especially insufferable one right here. I often feel like I just can't get through to any girl. 
that I really like, that the only girls that pay attention to me are the ones that I'm not interested in anyway. His voice? It makes me so uncomfortable. He is so disgusting. Like, I hate him so much. And his dad is even fucking worse. So if you want to know what I'm talking about, keep listening, because we're going to get into it. It's a big teaser. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was listening at work, and I was like, he is so terrible. All right. We'll get into it. We'll we'll stop teasing. Susan Fox Powell was beautiful. (laughs) She had these young boys, and then she just disappears. All of her friends say she would never leave her children. When's the last time you've seen them? Josh tells police he took their two young sons camping at midnight in sub-zero temperatures. Who would take their kids out camping at 2 o'clock in the morning, a 2-year-old and a 4-year-old? She told me that she was considering divorcing him. If something happens to me or my family, covering all my bases. I had no doubt that he was responsible. However, I could not prove it. Josh's father, Steve, was obsessed with her and in love with her in a sick and twisted way. He's stalking her, and he's created this fantasy that she's really wanting this. She knows I'm here. (laughs) He had something to do with it, no doubt in my mind. Is Susan's father-in-law the mastermind behind her disappearance? Move your hand, move the box. No! Like we were saying, this is kind of an older case. Um, Susan's been missing since December 2009. We'll start off with a little bit of background on Susan and her husband Josh and their families because it is plays a pretty big role into how everyone ended up the way they ended up. We always need the backstory. Yeah, definitely. So Susan Marie Cox was born on October 16, 1981 in Almogordo, New Mexico. Her parents are Chuck and Judy Cox. Susan has at least one sibling, a sister named Denise Cox Ernest. The other major player in the story is her husband, Josh Powell. He was born on January 20th, 1976 to Stephen, and we think it's pronounced Terica, T-E-R-R-I-C-A, but she goes by Terry, so we'll just call her Terry. And they lived in Puyallup, Washington. In total, they had five children, including Josh. There's a lot of information about Josh's early life available. Usually, I feel like with all these stories, there's not, but there's tons of information about Josh's growing up life. But Susan, there's not as much. We don't know as much about her. So we'll get into Josh since um, they're the more dysfunctional of the, the group anyways. And to be clear, this Josh's family is extremely dysfunctional. This is Probably the messiest family I have ever heard of in true crime. That that is like a big statement, but I don't know. Can you think of one that's messier? I can almost think of one that may almost beat them. That would be Lori Vallow. <laughs> true, but, true, true. Yeah, so they're no, definitely yeah. up there. I feel like these are like Lori's crazy. These people are creepy and vulgar. Really, it's just like what the fuck. Mm. Okay, so let's get into the what the fucks. So, according to divorce filings by Terry in 1992, Stephen shared pornography with Joshua and his two brothers. He acted more like a friend than their father, and he refused to discipline the boys. The three sons in the family lived with Stephen following the divorce, while the two daughters went to live with Terry. As a teenager, Joshua allegedly killed gerbils belonging to one of his sisters and threatened his mother with a butcher's knife. And I also read that he made his sister, like, touch the blood of her gerbil that he murdered. So 
just like a lot going on there. Josh also threatened to take his life on multiple occasions growing up. When he was 22, Josh was living in Seattle as a student at the University of Washington. His girlfriend at the time was a woman named Catherine Terry Everett. The two met at a local LDS church. Um, They ended up moving into an apartment together, and that is when Josh became controlling towards Catherine. She said, he would have restrictions and limitations on what I could and couldn't do when it came to my family. She also said, if I was going to go visit them, he had to come too. I couldn't go by myself. When I got away, you know, from him, and I didn't realize how much control he had over how I was and what I did and what I didn't do and stuff like that. But Their relationship ended when Catherine went alone to visit a friend in Utah. She decided then to not return to Seattle and broke up with Josh over the phone. She really dodged a bullet with that one. Yeah, it must be so scary it's to real. look yeah. back on. Just think what could have been if she had have stayed, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. That took her just like already being away from there to be like, I'm not going fucking back. <laughs> Josh met Susan Cox in November 2000. He would have been around 24 and Susan would have only been 19. The two had been studying an LDS Church Institute of Religion course together. They got together following a dinner party at Josh's apartment in Tacoma. Their relationship moved very quickly and the pair were married in the Portland, Oregon Temple in April 2001. After their marriage, Josh had a business degree, and he worked for different companies over the year. Susan was a trained cosmetologist. The couple had two sons. Charles was born in 2005, and Brayden was born in 2007. For a brief period before they had children, Susan and Josh lived with Stephen Powell, the father, in South Hill, Washington. Since Susan disappeared, we've learned that Stephen had developed an infatuation with her, which became more intense while she was living in the house. He used to follow her around the house, filming her. Stephen Powell was narcissistic, very self-absorbed, out of touch with reality. He was under the impression that anytime he was with Susan or saw Susan, she was hitting on him, that she was interested in him. She did that for me. He was infatuated with her. God, I worship her. She just turns me on. I'm in a perpetual state of turmoil when she's around. He would video her. He would be inside of his van and video her walking to and from buildings. I had to get a picture of this dress. She was so beautiful. Back here, it was a jacuzzi. I'd love to spend the evening in here with Susan is what I'd like to do. Here are the panties that I picked up out of Susan's laundry. God, they smell so nice. I think she's the most beautiful thing that ever walked the earth. He used a small mirror to spy on her while she used the bathroom. He stole her underwear, read her journals, and even recorded love songs for her, which he posted online. Lyrics to one of the songs that he wrote about Susan goes, Waiting for you. I could be getting a mistaken impression each time you seem to gaze at me. You let me touch you softly. Why is the question. The effect amazes me. You made my eyes pop out of their sockets. You could empty all my pockets. This flirtation isn't rocket science. You came along and really knocked my socks off. Now you're all, I think, in talk of. So much for my former self-reliance. So cringy. 
It's like not even good. Oh, it's like grade school poetry. <laughs> yes, oh. it really is. In 2003, Stephen told Susan about his feelings. She was disgusted and repulsed. I'm probably wrong, but I've really fallen in love with you. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, for the last year and a half, you're about the only thing we can think about. Maybe, I, maybe I'm getting the wrong signals from you. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm interpreting something that I shouldn't be interpreting. Um, you know, it just... For example, when we were sitting on the couch, it just felt like you were very, um, you know, I mean, I was extremely aroused, and I think you were somewhat aroused, at least I thought. I don't know where you're going with this. But Susan, I don't, I, I my, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I mean, I'm wearing. I'm married to your son, and I should just be the daughter-in-law. I know. Which puts me a step beneath your own children. She and Josh moved out of state soon after this. Stephen wrote another song after they moved, and that one goes like this. I'm missing you. I can love you in a secret way. I can love you each and every day. There's nothing I can't see. There's nothing you can't be. I'm not perfect, but I'm missing you. Oh, so awkward. I just, I can't stand them. Susan and Josh ended up in Salt Lake City, Utah, where Susan took up a job with Wells Fargo Investments. Things were not great in the couple's marriage during their time in Utah. In 2007, Josh filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which was discharged six months later. It said that they were around $200,000 in debt at the time. 
Immediately after being cleared from bankruptcy, he headed to Home Depot where he opened a credit card in Susan's name, and he immediately racked up more than $1,000 in debt on that card. One of the purchases he made with the credit card was for a rigid brand 18-volt cordless tool combo cap. This seems random now, but take note of this for later. Some of Susan's journal writings and emails from the time have been made public following her disappearance. Um, In the email, she wrote, I want him in counseling, on meds. I want my husband, friend, lover back. No more crazy, outrageous, outlandish beliefs or opinions. Um, That email was from July 11, 2008. And she was talking about how she was very stressed and feeling depressed because of their marriage falling apart. She also said in July, July 28, 2008, she said, I know everyone else will support me in whatever decisions even if that means I crash anyone's house in the middle of the night with my boys in tow. Hope that never happens or stay with him. But believe me, my bottom line is he will do counseling. She also said, I'm sure if he fixes himself, everyone else will see a much closer version of the guy I married, and it will be easy enough to forget the hell and turmoil he's put me through. Also in July 2008, Susan recorded a video surveying property damage she attributed to Josh and wrote a secret will that included the statements, I want documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, and if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Uh, This is me. July 29th, 2008. It is 1233. Mountain time. Um, Covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us that... Our assets are documented. Hope everything works out and we're all happy and live happily ever after as much as that's possible. Charlie, say hi. Susan stored her secret will in a safe deposit box away from Josh. On December 6, 2009, Susan and her sons attended church services. Josh's refusal to go to church had been a sore point in their marriage for a while. The trio walked home from church with a friend, Kiersey Hallowell. A neighbor, Jovanna Owings, dropped into the Powell home to visit with Susan later on December 6th. They ate pancakes and eggs. Susan told Jovanna at around 5 p.m. that she was tired and wanted to take a nap. Jovanna left the home at the same time as Josh did. Josh said he was taking Charlie and Brayden sledding. Jovanna has said that Susan seemed to be acting normally at the time. A neighbor has reported that he saw Josh Powell drive back into his driveway in garage at around 8.30 p.m. on December 6th. The next step in the timeline comes directly from Josh Powell. He said that around midnight on December 6th, 7th, he decided to take the two boys, then age two and four, camping. He said he took them to Simpson Springs Campground about 25 miles west of Vernon in the remote west desert of Tuella County. So we looked up the weather in the region for that date, and the low was negative 14 degrees Celsius, which is around 6 degrees Fahrenheit, and the high was negative 6 Celsius, which is around 21 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, We've also seen that the weather that day was supposed to be blizzard-like conditions, so not really a great time to bring your small children camping. In the middle of the night as well, like, you know. In the middle of the night. Yeah. A lot of suspicions there. Not a great story. So later that day, December 7th, the Powell's daycare provider became worried when Braden and Charlie did not show up as scheduled. The daycare tried to call Josh and Susan and could not get hold of either of them. She then called Josh Powell's mother and sister who called the police. 
Police broke into the Powells' home as they feared they may have been victims of carbon monoxide poisoning, but found no one there. Um, they noticed that there was two fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet in the home, though. Susan's purse, wallet, and ID were all found in the home as well. So Josh returned back to their home around 5 p.m. that day, December 7th, and he was taken to the police station and questioned. His story was that Susan was sleeping when he left to take the boys camping. He said that she didn't go on the trip because she felt sick. Their older son, Charles, who was then four or five, we've seen his age reported as both at the time that she disappeared. He later told police that their mother was also on the camping trip with them. He said his mommy went camping with them, although she did not come back home with them and he didn't know why. Okay. Well, what did you do last night? Um, Before you went to bed? Go camping. You went camping? Tell me about camping. Camping is like where you have s'mores. Where you have s'mores? Yeah. Yeah? And s'mores start with marshmallows and graham crackers and chocolate and another graham cracker? The s'mores have marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate and another graham cracker? Yeah. I see. So you had s'mores yesterday, last night? Yeah. Where were you camping at? Um, I was camping at Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur Park? No, Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur National Park. Who were you camping with? Um, my dad and my mom and my, my little brother. Dad, your mom, and your brother? Did you sleep over there? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, so Charlie, when you guys came home from camping, who came home with you? My dad. And? And my mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park. Your mom stayed there? Yeah. How do you know your mom stayed? Because I, because, um, I was coming. Because you were coming? Yeah. So your mom stayed at the park? Yeah. Where did she stay at the park? Um, she, Do you know where? She stayed at the National Park. Do you know where at the park? No? No. She, my mom stayed where a crystal are. Where what are? Where crystals are. The crystals? Crystals? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Crystals? Yeah. Your mom stayed where the crystals are? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Police did not search the Powell home on that night that Josh returned. Photo evidence showed after police left the house, Josh stacked several pieces of fireproof sheetrock and placed them on the concrete garage floor. Next, he placed an unknown metal object on top of the sheetrock, grabbed an oxycetylene torch that he had only bought two weeks before, and destroyed the object. Josh admitted to police that he had been fighting with Susan, and he said he accused her of sleeping with another man. Cellular data shows Josh Powell spoke with a neighbor around 3 p.m. on December 7th. He told the neighbor he was driving around town with his sons, and he had no idea his wife was missing. He said he didn't realize she had not gone to work. He then drove 20 miles out of town and left a message on Susan's voicemail saying he was back from a camping trip. 
In the PAL car, police found a generator, blanket, gas cans, tarps, and a shovel. Susan's phone was found in the family's Chrysler Town and Country van when Josh returned from camping. We believe that the family only had one vehicle, so there was no suggestion at the time that Susan had been able to take a vehicle and leave on her own. Josh told police during this questioning session that he got confused about what day of the week it was, which is why he didn't go to work on December 7th as scheduled. The December 7, 2009 was a Monday, the Sunday night into the Monday morning, I guess. Oh, his story, they went camping then anyway. So he really didn't think this through. He could have done it on the weekend. It would have, you know, raised much less suspicion, but he chose to do it on a day when they were both meant to be at work. So they were both missed essentially straight away. For someone as insufferably smug as Josh Powers, you would think he would have had a better plan. Well, I feel like he this was his plan because he was so smug. He just thought he yeah, would get away he with didn't, it. Yeah, didn't think he needed to put any effort into it. So during his interview with police, Josh was asked why he was not answering his cell phone. He told police he didn't have a charger with him and he was trying to conserve the battery. However, a detective noticed that his phone was plugged into a charger on the center console of his vehicle. Josh had also removed the SIM card from his phone. Josh called Susan's parents on December 8th to let them know that Susan was missing. By the end of the night on December 8th, Josh had invoked his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. On December 9th, police obtained a warrant and searched the Powell home. They were seen removing boxes, bags, and a computer from the premises. What police found during the search was disturbing. They discovered a garbage bag and the minivan filled with heavily burned pieces of sheetrock, melted chunks of metal, three short strips of copper wire, three screws, and a single broken Phillips head bit. Inside the garage, police also uncovered a burnt spot on the concrete floor. Near it sat the torch, a fire extinguisher, a red plastic gas can, and the rigid tool bag. This is what Josh purchased in his 1K spending spree at Home Depot. During the search, investigators found traces of Susan's blood on the floor, life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million, and a handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. On December 10th, police visited the Simpson Springs camp- campground and found no evidence that Josh and the boys had been camping there on the night of December 6th to 7th. On December 12th, Susan's family gathered outside the LDS Church's Hunter Central Stake Center to pray, sing hymns, and start a 24-hour fast in hopes of her safe return. Josh was there and was crying, but he did not speak. Josh handed out missing person flyers to people in the area that night. Before we get into the rest of Susan's story... I just have to say, sometimes reading about true crime all day, every day, it can be a lot. It can be pretty taxing on your mental health. And sometimes I just want something to shut my brain off. So I stop thinking about it. And sometimes I turn to a mobile game. And I just found this new one that I've been testing out, June's Journey. It's a great thing to do when I need to just shut my brain off for a little while. I love that game. Anytime I have five minutes when I'm waiting for the kids or, you know, sitting on the couch after a long day, I open it up, start playing. It just, you know, makes me rely on my memory, makes me think. You play as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. You'll put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. So to solve the crime in each chapter, you've got to find hidden objects. Once you've found them, you can move on to the next chapter and next story. It's got great graphics, a great storyline, really, really enjoyable. You can just sit back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape to the glamorous Roaring Twenties, which is where the game is set. And there's new chapters every single week, so there's always going to be a new case waiting to be cracked. There's a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. All right, back to Susan's story. 
On December 14th, 2009, Josh hired a defense attorney, Scott C. Williams. He had been scheduled to show up for a third interview with the West Valley City Police, and he failed to show up. Next day, December 15th, Josh was officially named a suspect in the case. His car was impounded by police, and they said he had been uncooperative. He hired a rental car and essentially vanished for 18 hours. When he returned the rental car, it had an extra 807 miles on it. So it's still unclear as to where Josh went as the car didn't have GPS data. A neighbor saw Josh when he went to return the rental car and get his car back from the police. This neighbor stated he was acting oddly, his hands were badly windburned, and he kept putting lotion on them. Following Susan's disappearance, Josh began acting even more erratically. He liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions, and withdrew his children from daycare. Some of Josh's co-workers have since come forward and said that he talked about how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in the western Utah desert. A few weeks after Susan disappeared and before the kids were removed from daycare, a teacher reported that Charlie told her that his mother was dead. Brayden also drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told carers that mommy was in the trunk. I guess it's pretty obvious as to why Josh was nervous about the kids being in childcare and took them out because... Kids are not very good at keeping secrets like this, it yeah, seems. Very honest. Nor should Very they honest be. about things like that. They just say what they saw. Yeah. Josh took the boys to Puyallup, Washington to stay with Stephen for the holidays in December 2009. On January 6, 2010, he returned to Utah with his brother Michael to pack the family's belongings. Some reports say that Josh moved back to Washington after he lost his job in Utah. Josh seems to have been a bit of a loser on the employment front. He had a lot of failed business ventures, a lot of bankruptcy issues, lots of failed attempts at starting whatever business he felt at the time. He'd lost his job at Aspen Logistics, where he worked as a computer programmer for repeatedly failing to show up for shifts or check in with his manager. When Josh and the kids moved to Washington, they lived in a house with Stephen Powell, Josh's brothers, Michael and Jonathan, and his sister, Alina. Soon after the move, a website, susanpowell.org, was launched. The site has now been taken down, but it's available to view on Wayback Machine. So this is a little bit from the website. There's obviously more that you can read on there. We'll link the Wayback link on the blog if you want to look at more of it. Um, but this little bit says... We need your help to find wife and mother Susan Powell, whom we all love. Susan went missing in West Valley, Utah on December 7th, 2009. So after talking about how beautiful and great Susan was, it then says, No doubt people are concerned about the safety and welfare of Susan and Josh's children. While the children deserve the utmost protection from the media and the public, this site will attempt to share general facts about the children's happiness and progression. These sweet boys will need your support, both in terms of prayers and in terms of any other support you would like to offer. Money. <laughs> Doesn't say that, but I'm saying that. Um, the children are happy and well-adjusted in their new home. They are now living with their father and extended family. They receive love and hugs frequently throughout each day. They regularly play with their friends, and they get lots of personal attention to their education and other needs. And then there's also an entire section of the website devoted to Josh. It says, Josh is a loving father and husband. He likes to take his wife out to dinner or watch movies with her. He regularly does activities with his beautiful wife and with his entire family. Josh is totally committed to his wife and children, continually finding new and engaging activities to do with them. Josh loves to socialize with friends and family. He enjoys gardening, woodworking, building construction projects. 
He knows a few songs on the piano and guitar. It's like his dating biography on his missing wife's website. A glowing review of Josh when it has nothing really to do with Josh, the website. Josh, who definitely did not murder his wife. Uh, It goes on. He's been known to sing a song when the mood hits. He also loves <laughs> he also loves photography, especially when the photos are of Susan and the boys, of course. He enjoys problem solving, and he is a computer programmer by trade. Josh is very involved in his children's lives, and every day he includes the children in many hobbies. He loves himself so much, <laughs> and you can see that clearly here. Yeah. Like, there are so many audio recordings of him just basically talking about how he's better than everyone else how the way he thinks is the correct way just loves himself like kanye west loves himself (laughs) that is josh powell so on the website there was also some posts that insinuated that susan may have run off with another missing man stephen kocher he also disappeared in 2009 in december um At the time, there was some speculation about the two cases being connected because they were both members of the LDS church. They both went missing within days of each other from the same state or, you know, general area. So um, I'm pretty sure Josh and Stephen were behind starting that rumour and police have since said that there isn't any connection between the two. Both Stephen and Susan are obviously still missing. Um, But, yeah, most people think that Josh and Stephen were behind starting those rumours about Susan. Josh went back to West Valley City to make some repairs on the house there on January 28, 2010. While he was there, police took the minivan again to conduct further investigation on it. So on February 15, 2010, Susan's family held a news conference in Washington. They said that Susan had endured physical abuse from Josh and they also spoke in detail about the marriage problems that the couple were having. They said that the problems were due to Josh being controlling. Susan had told her family and friends that she would leave the marriage by their April 6th wedding anniversary if their relationship did not get better. Police started looking more into the rest of the Powell family and, you know, maybe if they were involved in what has ever happened to Susan. They seized computers from Stephen and found 4,500 images of Susan taken without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. Um, I know we also had a message sent to our Instagram. I won't go into it because it was quite no, descriptive. You want me to say it? <laughs> I don't even know where to go with this. But um, they sent a message saying they were familiar with the case or they knew someone who had worked on the case and that basically Stephen um, had been caught taking a used tampon of Susan Susan's out of the garbage and pleasuring himself while he sucked it, I think. Is that right? Like yes. it was something horrible and just oh, revolting. Um, obviously, we don't know if that's true, so but I wouldn't, based on how gross Stephen and Josh were, I wouldn't put it past them. I would 100%. Like any other case, I would have been like, no fucking way. Yeah. This case and these people, I'm like, mm, seems very on brand for them. Yeah. Very disgusting. Poor Susan. Poor Susan. Police also started to turn their attention to Michael Powell, who was Josh's brother. They learned that he had sold his Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Pendleton, Oregon, shortly after Susan disappeared. He apparently later ordered and paid for satellite images of the wrecking yard lot. So I'm assuming this he did that so he could see if his car was still there or what had happened to the car. Police, though, did find the car. A sniffer dog indicated that a decomposing human body had been in the trunk, but DNA tests on the car proved inconclusive. The relationship between Susan's family and the Powell family became increasingly strained as the months went on. Josh and Stephen spoke to media outlets and they basically said that Susan had been in love with Stephen Powell. Um, He said they had been falling in love prior to her disappearance. And he also cited contents of her journal, which Susan had written when she was a teenager. 
as evidence to support his theory that she was mentally unstable and could have run away with another man. Stephen also told ABC at one point that he and Susan had engaged in, quote, father-in-law, daughter-in-law flirting with each other and maybe some sexual touching or whatever, and I enjoyed it, frankly. It was definitely a romantic obsession, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Susan's a beautiful woman, and when a beautiful woman comes on to you like that, you uh, it's really hard to resist that kind of a thing. I mean, maybe it's just me. Probably inappropriate, but um, I, I admit those things were going on. I just want to also clarify for people who, like, maybe are newer to this case or haven't heard much about it before there's no way that anything steven is saying about them flirting or touching like it's not true no she moved out of state to get away from him and there is no i think there is absolutely categorically no way that susan was ever no. having an affair or interested in steven she wasn't even interested in josh so <laughs> <laughs> steven is just very delusional yeah. and i remember there there's the interviews he did and stuff, and he's just like, she put on lotion in front of him once. Like, she was just putting lotion on her legs in the home that she lived in, and he was obsessed with it. Like, and he would talk about how, like, she put the lotion on her legs in front of me on purpose because she knew it turned me on and blah, blah, blah. Like, just totally delusional. So you just preyed upon poor Susan. Stephen and Josh were so similar in terms of their kind of grand, uh, you know, illusions of grandeur about themselves. They just thought they were God's gift to women, really. They are, are not. As we can yes. see, they are not. The Cox family told the media that Josh had alienated Charlie and Brayden against Susan and that he'd also limited her access to the family's bank account, even though she was the one basically earning all the money. They said that he would not give her enough money to buy food for the children, so she had been forced to start growing her own vegetables. On September 22, 2010, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. Josh Long, general for Washington Estate, said that Washington State, sorry, said that Joshua was a subject in the child pornography investigation. A friend of Stephen claimed that he was preoccupied with porn and was hung up on Susan, Susan sexually. Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, filed for custody of Charlie and Braden the day after Stephen was arrested, and he was granted temporary custody. The court said that if Josh wanted to regain custody, he would have to move out of Stephen's home. Josh rented a house in South Hill in Washington, but police alleged now that he never moved in there and that he kind of had the rental just to make the court believe that he was following their instructions, but he always still essentially lived with Stephen. There's a woman called Jennifer Graves. She's Josh's sister and she is estranged from the family. She has been kind of outspoken about the revoltingness that was Stephen and Josh. She worked with police in 2010 in January to wear a microphone. It was a bit of a fail, though. Josh refused to discuss Susan's disappearance with Jennifer, and he said he couldn't do so based on advice from his attorney. Jennifer and Stephen got into an argument, and Stephen threw her and her husband, who his name is Kurt Graves, out of the house and told them they weren't welcome back. Jennifer has spoken to the media and said that she believed that, quote, Josh, Josh was responsible for his wife Susan's power disappearance. Josh's other sister, Alina, has said that she was also suspicious of Josh, but she's kind of changed her mind after she observed his behavior, apparently. She said, I scrutinized him pretty deeply. I watched him when he would talk, when he would interact with anyone else. I had my doubts. I never, ever heard anything that was remotely suspicious. I don't know in how many months. So she thinks he's innocent as far as I know. In November 2010, Josh spoke to the Salt Lake Tribune and he spoke about Susan and said that his wife was extremely unstable and would be chewed up like hamburger when she returned. So in 2011, Josh underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations. 
The evaluations found that Josh had adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. However, there were some issues that were raised. These issues concerned the ongoing criminal investigations, Josh's failure to admit his normal personal shortcomings, his overbearing behavior with his sons, and his persistent defensiveness and paranoia. Um, That was attributed to the police and media attention as well as his underlying narcissistic traits. The initial recommendation following the evaluations was for Josh to have visitation with Charlie and Brayden several times a week, supervised by a social worker. On August 9, 2011, a Washington judge granted Josh's request for a temporary restraining order against Chuck Cox. The two had had an altercation at a Lowe's store, and they were both given mutual anti-harassment orders and were required to stay 500 feet apart from each other. Thank you. We're just asking the public to remember her. Thank you. A simple roadside rally to keep Susan Powell's disappearance in the spotlight. We were just handing out flyers and all of a sudden he comes approaching with cameras. Instead became a flashpoint between families. I have a restraining order right here. Would you like to read it? Oh, no, that's okay. Chuck Cox, the missing woman's father, squared off with Susan Powell's father-in-law at a Fred Meyer parking lot in Puyallup. How is you coming here helping to find Susan? It isn't helping to find Susan. How is your standing at our neighborhood market helping to find Susan, Chuck? Steve Powell says Cox is spreading misinformation about his son and harassing his family by staging events where they shop and live. I was in your neighborhood the day the newspaper were there. I wasn't in your neighborhood at all. Chuck is a liar. Chuck is lying. Uh, The heated clash took a turn when Susan's husband, Josh, pulled up and made a teary-eyed claim. Chuck Cox uses my sons as pawns in the media to drive whatever message he is trying to drive. I'm not able to discuss. Susan disappeared from their home in Utah a year and a half ago. Police say Josh Powell is the only person of interest, though he's never been arrested or charged. I have done everything I can with investigators. We're dealing with a lot of... uh, uncooperative behavior from Josh Powell. He just has not come um, forward and is not cooperative with police. Josh says he spoke to detectives initially, but says he stopped because police try to make his son say things that aren't true. They attacked my sons. I will protect my sons from anyone and everyone. In January 2012, Josh's family launched a website. They seem to like these attacking websites. Well, he is a computer programmer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that alleged Chuck and Judy either abo- ab- that Chuck and Judy either abused Charlie and Braden or allowed them to come to harm. The website was created just days before a custody hearing was due to appear before the courts, but the website was disabled by the end of that month, so it didn't last very long. In the last week of January 2012, Utah police discovered 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on a computer seized from the Powell family home. The pornography had been cached when viewed by the previous owner of the computer, which had been purchased by Susan secondhand. The images weren't illegal because they were hand-drawn and kind of cartoonish, but they were cause for great concern to the court psychologists, particularly given Josh's earlier denial, denial of, you know, saying he'd never had any such images in his possession. And it was recommended that Josh was to receive more thorough testing. On February 1, 2012, a judge ordered that the Powell children should remain in custody of Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy. So I believe that the court decided at that time that Josh was able to see the children only through his scheduled supervised visits and that a social worker had to be present at all times when he was with the kids. 
So before we get into the rest of Susan's story, we're going to just chat quickly about our, one of our sponsors, Fit On. With my family, we've been planning some big trips coming up this year, hopefully some big overseas trips. It's been a little while and I just really have been wanting to feel my best. And so I've started to use the Fit On app. I've been loving being able to work out from home whenever I've got five, 10 minutes, or, you know, even if I've got an hour, I can, ta- you know, find a workout that I can tailor to suit me. On the app, you can find Pilates, yoga, HIIT classes, kickboxing, cardio, and there's even meditation, which I've been using to kind of wind down at night. So even before we started recording today, I did the toned up arms 20 minute workout. I can already feel my arms, you know, shaking. <laughs> it was mm. such a good workout. Really, really, really good way to start the day. I'm going to check that one out because I definitely need to work out my arms. FitOn is the number one premium free fitness app and it's redefining the workout experience. Text society to 64,000 to join FitOn for free. FitOn is flexible too. Choose from over 1,000 easy to follow workouts for all fitness levels or you can follow a customized workout plan based on whatever your fitness goals are. No equipment or gym membership required. Not paying to work out. FitOn workouts are always free to use. Join over 10 million people getting their fit on. Work out for free anytime, anywhere. Text society to 64,000 to join fit on for free. Text society to 64,000. That's society 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. Terms apply. Available at fitonapp.com slash terms. So Josh began to carry out his final evil plan on February 4th, 2012. During this time, he gave away the kids' toys and books and made a series of goodbyes through phone calls and letters. He also filled two five-gallon gas cans with gasoline, which is, according to the News Tribune, one of the last phone calls that Josh made was to his sister, I'm assuming to Alina and not to Jennifer, who he was estranged from. He left a voicemail saying, I am not able to live without my son. I'm sorry to everyone I've hurt. Goodbye. One of the supervised visits with with the social worker was scheduled to happen on February 5th, 2012. Chuck Cox has since spoken about the day before the visit. He said that Brayden was tucked into his beds with pillows and sheets from the Disney movie Cars. Charlie was sleeping underneath a Spider-Man-themed bedspread. The boys were worn out and had crashed after a day of watching their older cousin play basketball. They'd played in the grandparents' backyard full of dirt piles, trees, and lots of mud and water. Chuck has said that they were happy and content. And I know, like, just as kind of an aside, Chuck and Judy really cared for these boys. They, you know, they were older. They really took it upon themselves to make sure that they were well cared for and loved after this horrible, you know, thing happened to their mother. The following day was Sunday. The boys had breakfast of fruit and cereal. Chuck then went to church. Josh had insisted that the boys not be allowed to go to church. So they stayed at home and they were picked up at 11.30 by a social worker named Elizabeth Griffin Hall. Elizabeth was planning to take them to Josh for a scheduled three-hour visit. Elizabeth has said that she took the kids to Josh's home and that when he opened the door, he pulled the children into the house and he slammed the door in her face. She called 911 and you can hear the clip here. Oh. And were you calling about the fire in the 8200 block? Yes. It's just after noon on Sunday. This frantic caller to 911, a social worker witnessing the unspeakable. And you think he might have done this intentionally? Yes. It's a moment of crisis, one she tried to prevent moments earlier in another call to 911 after dropping off Josh Powell's two sons for a supervised visit. Something really weird has happened. The kids went into the house and the parent will not let me in the door. What should I do? The call lasts seven minutes. The operator asking her name, the color of her car, ignoring her urgency. But I think I need help right away. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. 
Are you there? They smell gasoline and he won't let me in. In a by-the-book approach, she's told officers can't respond immediately. And they have to respond to emergency, life-threatening situations first. Well, this, is, this could be life-threatening. I'm, I'm afraid for their lives. We know now, inside, a crazed father is butchering his children and setting off an inferno, 10 gallons of gasoline. He blew up the house and the kids. He didn't ever leave the house. He just opened the door. The kids were, kids were one step ahead of me. They're five and seven. They were one step ahead of me, and he slammed the door in my face. Instantly, a flood of calls from neighbors. Uh, fire, there's a house on fire explosion. The house just blew up and it's on fire. And this is the most frustrating 911 call. You can hear the clip of the 911 call here. And the 911 operator did officially get reprimanded after the call. Um, they said that there was, you know, many red, red flags that should have meant there was a faster response. Social worker asked, how long will it be? And the person said, I don't know, madam, you know, like things like that. It was just a lot going on in the 911 call. Josh pulled both the kids into the house and he then attacked them with a hatchet. He then sent off emails detailing what to do with his money, house utilities and other aspects of his life. He sent these emails to his cousins, his pastor and friends. The social worker has said that she pouted on the door until she smelled gas and then I guess she kind of knew what was coming. She moved away from the house and it basically exploded into a fireball. Josh, Charlie and Brayden were dead. Autopsy findings revealed that Brayden suffered, quote, chop injuries from a hatchet to his head and neck. Charlie had a chop injury to the neck. Horrifyingly, the cause for both boys was carbon monoxide poisoning, which means they were both still alive when Josh set the house on fire. You just have to hope they're unconscious and didn't suffer too much after he attacked them with the hatchet. Not saying that murdering your kids isn't awful enough, but it was just like an awful fucking way to kill them too. It's I can't so even imagine just, imagine just pulling those poor kids into the house and whipping out the hatchet. Imagine their terror. I would I just, uh, that's sickening. Totally unhinged. Josh had filled, as we mentioned, he had the gasoline in the home. The Pierce County Sheriff Sergeant Ed Troyer said one can was found with the bodies. The other, we believe, was spread throughout the house. Ed Troyer also spoke about some of the emails that Josh had sent. Some of them simply said, I'm sorry, goodbye, while others said, you know, what he wanted to do with his money and other things that had happened. Lots of people ask why the recipients of the email kind of didn't do anything about it and why Josh's sister didn't do anything about the voicemail, but the sheriff has said that none of these emails arrived anywhere where they could do anything about it, basically that, you know, they, no one had any time to act before Josh carried out his plan. Josh also emailed his lawyer, who at that time was a man called Jeffrey Bassett. The email to him said, I'm sorry, goodbye, but he didn't see it until two hours after the explosion. Josh did not mention Susan in any of the emails that he sent, and his cause of death was ruled as a suicide. Chuck Cox spoke about the situation and what he believed Josh had been thinking. He said he lost control of the children. He was sure he was going to get them back by just claiming to take care of the issues. When he realized he really didn't and those pictures came out from his computer, I think that was it. He knew it was over. It was the sense of losing control of the situation that sent Josh over the edge. Chuck also said they were his property, talking about the children, and he wanted them back. They were his, and that's all it was. He wasn't really interested in them. I believe that he knew it was coming down to the point that his stories, his wild accusations and stuff, he was going to have to answer to them and come with facts, and he didn't have any facts, so he saw no way out. Michael, who was Josh's brother, was named as the main beneficiary for Josh's life insurance policies. When authorities notified Stephen of the deaths, he was in jail at this stage, they said he didn't seem very upset by the news, but he was angry towards authorities who notified him. Despite his lack of emotion, he was placed on suicide watch. 
So after the deaths of Charlie and Braden and the suicide of Josh, things kind of went a little bit quieter. Stephen was in jail. The search for Susan was still un, you know, ongoing by police, but things were pretty quiet. One year after the explosion, which was February 11, 2013, Michael Powell, who was Josh's brother and the beneficiary of the life insurance, and you also remember that he was the one who sold his car to the wrecking yard, jumped to his death from a parking garage in Minnesota. This, email, uh, this info is from the Salt Lake Tribune. It said, Salt Lake Tribune confirmed that Michael Powell, aged 30, died after he jumped around 2.25 p.m. from the multi-story Center Village, a complex that consists of a seven-story parking structure and additional floors dedicated to a hotel and condos. Powell lived on the block. Four people apparently witnessed the fall. He landed on the sidewalk next to the building and died immediately. And police have since said that Michael was evasive in his communications with them about Susan's case and that they believe Josh and Michael had worked together in the murder and then consequent disappearance of Susan. In February 2013, James Manley, he was a man who had conducted the court-ordered evaluations of Josh. He told the media that he believed Josh was involved in Susan's disappearance. He said he didn't mention the suspicions in his report at the time because it was beyond the scope of his duties and also because Josh had been never been charged with any wrongdoing in relation to Susan's case. So on May 21, 2013, the West Valley City Police closed the active investigation into Susan's disappearance. They did say, though, that detectives would investigate any new leads, but basically they weren't going to be actively working and investigating the case anymore. They also spoke on this date about a wiretap order, which they'd used to monitor communication between Josh and Michael. They carried it out for months in 2011. But Michael and Josh had used sophisticated computer encryption to communicate and investigators weren't able to decipher much of that. So they obviously knew what they were doing. The fact that they did that is just kind of enough of a sign to begin with. Yeah. Um, the Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill said West Valley police and prosecutors were walking, working towards formally screening the case when Josh killed himself and the boys. During the screening process, prosecutors look at all evidence to determine what, if any, charges are appropriate. And the district attorney said, we unfortunately never got to that. In June 2013, Jennifer, Josh's sister, wrote a memoir um, about the insanity of the Powell family. It was called A Light in Dark Places. She said that she was inspired to write the book to help other people to recognize abuse in either their relationships or relationships around them because it is not always completely apparent. And they talk about a lot, this a lot in the cold podcast. We got into it a little in the beginning, but these kids, these siblings, not that it's an excuse for like the way they grew up. They did have a really difficult childhood. The divorce between Stephen and Terry was, was very difficult and very bitter. They were very bitter towards each other and there was very vindictive. A lot of it had to also do with the LDS church. Uh, the dad didn't want to file the church. The mom did. There was a lot of like religious brainwashing with the children and like fake kidnapping the children, trying to get them to come live with mom instead, trying to get them to come live with dad instead, like just turning them against each other, and just like a very emotionally abusive and physically abusive upbringing for them. And I feel like a lot of that did kind of factor into the way that Josh and his brother kind of grew up and they became kind of just like their father, very narcissistic, very smug, very just thinking they were better than everyone else. Definitely. So there was a pretty arduous legal battle for people who wanted to get control of Susan's estate. In March 2015, Chuck won the battle against Terry and Alina. So Susan's father won against Josh's mother and sister. The woman had wanted to have Susan declared dead. 
They could collect her life insurance, but Chuck was awarded full control of Susan's estate. The Cox family also sued Washington's Department of Social and Health Services and its social workers. They said that the agency had prioritized Josh's parental rights over the safety of the boys, and basically that meant they facilitated their deaths. In 2015, a federal court granted summary judgment to the defendants. They ruled that the social workers had immunity and was not negligent. But in 2019, an appeals court partially overturned that decision, ruling that the social workers did have immunity, but that the you know department's negligence could proceed to trial. At a trial, the jury ruled that the DSHS was negligent and they awarded $98 million to the estates of Susan's two sons. Susan's family also pressured state lawmakers in Washington and Utah to pass bills that would restrict or block visitation rights for parents who are being investigated for murder. Stephen Powell was released from prison on July 11, 2017, after serving a total of seven years for his voyeurism and child pornography convictions. He died from complications of heart problems in Tacoma, Washington on July 23, 2018. Stephen never revealed what he knew about Susan's disappearance, and many people believe that he took a lot of secrets to the grave. I think all three of them did, Michael, Stephen, and Josh. Mm -hmm. They they were probably the keys to the case, and now they're all gone. So Jennifer spoke about Stephen's death to two news. She said, It's more of an emotion of not sad that he's gone, but sad that he lived such a poor life. So that was basically it for Susan's case um, up until recently. As we mentioned, there's that great podcast called Cold. It goes into a ton of investigative detail. I know that he looked into like how where Josh could have gone in the rental car to put 800 miles on it. Like it's, it's such a good podcast. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Things every now and then there'd be an article here and there about Susan, but it was just basically you know it's an anniversary or it's there was nothing really happening in the case. Yeah. But just a few days ago, um, there's a YouTube channel owned by Dave Sparks, who's the producer of the Discovery Channel show Diesel Brothers. He posted four videos, which were filmed over 11 days, and basically they'd been excavating a mine shaft in Utah. The mine shaft was 225 feet or 69 meters deep, and it's in the location of where Josh said that he took the kids camping on the night that Susan disappeared. They found bones and clothing. Um, They've sent all that off to be analysed by forensic scientists. They said that they excavated 40,000 pounds of dirt and debris to get to these bones. The photos are making the rounds. We'll put them on the blog. We've posted them on our social media. It's I think there's like three or four pieces of bone that have been found. Some people have said they believe they're animal bones, but other people believe that they could be human. Yeah, I have have no idea looking at them. Yeah, But like they were found with like fabric, so. Yeah, it looks like pants, like a pair of pants. Um, I feel like they're very deteriorated. Yeah. I've seen like some people try and kind of analyze the bones and what they look like. Yeah. I don't know. So it could be. And the one good thing that will come of all this is apparently they've fast tracked the DNA process and I guess the forensic process for these bones. And they've said that they should have results by mid next week. So that will be right around the time this podcast is due to come out. So we might have to do a quick update if the bones, you know, if they do get some resolution on the bones. Chuck Cox has spoken about them and he said, I'm feeling pretty confident that it's going to be found. This is Susan. It makes much more sense than some of the other leads by location and the items that were found. I just think they found at least a portion of her remains. When they asked him again, he said, that's what I expect will come from this or I hope. If it's not her, then someone else will get closure for her family, their family, sorry. 
So um, I guess we can move on to some theories now. I know we've mentioned a few times earlier in this episode about the drills and, you know, Josh going on the $1,000 spending spray at Home Depot. Dave Corley, who is the host of the uh, Cold Podcast, he has a theory that Susan was killed with one of these power tools. His theory is that the object Josh destroyed, we know with that oxyacetylene torch that we spoke about, was probably the power tool that that Josh used to murder Susan. This info is from an article by KSL News, which I'll link in the blog. But basically, it says that they sent the burned metal to an FBI lab, but the Bureau could not identify the object. They could only confirm with the majority of the object burn chunks had significant amount of calcium and strontium. I think that's strontium. Strontium ferrite is magnetic and ceramic strontium is often used in magnetic motors. And these motors are used in power tools. So they, they go into a lot of analysis and basically say that, you know, wires that were found at the scene are also consistent with what would be inside a rigid impact driver. Dave Corley actually bought a similar of you know power tool to the rigid impact driver, and he destroyed it in a similar way that he believes Josh did to see if it was kind of the same, and it was. There was a few inconsistencies, but Dave Corley has said that he could explain that because of you know you can never totally replicate the same scenario, but it was basically close enough. So I was just looking up a rigid impact driver. It's basically like a drill, right? Yeah, I think so. When I look it up, it's just like it's like an electric drill. Um, that is one theory about how Josh killed Susan. You can read it in you know really specific forensic detail on the blog. Um, I know one of the other theories that has been kind of floated around is that Josh drugged Susan on the day that she died. I guess to make it more easy for him to carry out his plan. Um, Giovanna Owens, in terms of eating the eggs and the pancakes with Susan, I, like it seems a bit strange to me that Susan would go and nap at 5 p.m. I don't know if that's strange to anyone else, but especially while when someone you have, was over, like to be like so tired yeah. at 5 p.m. when you have someone over, and especially with little kids, um, like it just seems like a strange time to want to nap. So there was always speculation that maybe Josh had poisoned the pancakes and it made Susan drowsy. Which I, you know, I also think that could be a thing, but it seems risky to do that when someone else is there too. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of kind of the pancakes and that theory, Dave Corley believes that Josh spent years planning Susan's murder. You know, he took out the life insurance policies. So he believes that Josh drugged Susan, mixed pills up in the pancakes, and that he used the power tool to kill her before wrapping her body and putting it in the minivan. He also believes that Josh cleaned up the couch with the rug doctor he'd recently purchased and he left a few little spots of blood there because he was, you know, being hasty and trying to clean it all up. And I guess that would also explain why the fan was blowing in the house. Trying to dry it all. If you kill someone with like a power tool, like a drill, there'd be like way more blood unless he used like a tarp or something, which I wouldn't put past him either. Well, they said there was tarps in the van, but yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Dave Colley has also said that he believes Josh actually wanted Susan's body to be found so he could collect the life insurance and that he had originally probably left Susan's body near her workplace um, and that his story was going to be that she was attacked and killed on the way to work. But then when he realized the story was kind of falling apart, that's when he got the rental car and gone moved and went and moved Drove the body. 800 miles. Yeah. And maybe Michael could have met him then to kind of, or maybe even Michael oh. picked up the body and met him somewhere where they dumped it. Yeah, it's crazy how many what ifs there are. Like, there's so many plausible theories, or just like because there's no answers at all, really. Well, I think I think the one almost certain is that Josh killed Susan. 
Yeah, um, for sure. It's just a matter then of where he put the body and who and who else knew and was involved in the plan. I can't even imagine though if he did kill her with a power drill. That seems like a slow way to kill someone. Like also, I'm like, was she drugged, in, incapacitated, and then he kind of just finished the job? Yeah, maybe. I but even like, I don't know. I was wondering maybe if it was like a set that had more than like drills in it, <laughs> because like, how would you even? kill someone with a drill i get like you could drill it into their head but that's like crazy but then again this guy used a hatchet on his children so it just seems like a very messy and that's what i was saying usual way like he could have if he drugged her he could have just suffocated her for example or something but or just added more drugs Mm. but clearly he burned something so i don't it's just like what like what happened something metal so i don't know it's very strange Wonder, I'd love to know what was going through his mind. And I'm assuming they never found the power tools. Like they found the bag no. instead, right? And Dave Corley in his podcast goes into a lot of detail about why he thinks it was the power tool. But basically there was a lot of photos that have been released by police. And in some you can see different power tools. And then Josh has obviously moved them in later photos. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes into a lot of detail about why that is his theory. Like I think it's definitely a plausible one. Yeah, no, I just like, like I can't imagine like how josh pulled this off altogether or just like i just can't imagine like what he did i don't disagree that he that he probably used the power tools it seems like it it's just like a wild thing to do i guess you know if he's planned it for a long time i guess he was ready with all these yeah i don't know it's very strange and we will probably likely never know because if they do find susan they probably won't still not gonna yeah yeah all of her or enough to kind of close the story out totally yeah I just found another article just from today. Um, in terms of the bones in the pants, the pants um, have been said to be around 26 inches in size and they do look to be women's pants. Mm. Um, her friend Kesey Hallowell, who we spoke about earlier, she went to church on the day that Susan disappeared with Susan and the boys. She said, I saw the pants myself. I touched them. I looked at them closely and I think they were a pair of women's dress pants. Why would someone throw women's dress pants down a mine? I'm trying not to get my hopes up, but I've spent many hours crying thinking this is her. We've really found her. But then, you know, common sense will come back and we'll say it's probably not. Don't get your hopes up. We've been here so many times before. <sighs> I didn't know they were women's pants until today. I just, like, they didn't, they're, you know, all obviously muddy and very. Yeah, they're really, like, deteriorated. Yeah. So, like, you can't I, if, really I, tell. if I just found those outside, I would have no idea really what they were it does look kind of like pants just because of like the hem but otherwise it's really hard to tell so Um, maybe by next week we'll have a resolution to this case i still can't believe that maybe it will come to an end but i really hope so family i hope so me too just such like a terrible story what one thing i just want to add i guess is that as we said, this is an enormous case. There's been an enormous amount of research and work done mm-hmm. over the years by investigators. So what we've tried to do with this episode is just give you an overview of the kind of most important parts. But if you do want a deep dive, check out Cold. There is so much out there that, you know, you could spend days, you know, reading information about Susan's case. This is like the intro course. Yeah. So now you have like a little bit of background. You kind of know the main idea of the story. And, like, the guy who did the cold podcast, he requested, like, the whole case file, and he has, like, all the information. Thousands of pages, Tons of stuff, journal entries, everything. So check that. If you feel like it's something you'd be interested in, definitely worth checking out, as we've said many times. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all we've got for the intro course to Susan Powell. Let us know your thoughts, or I'd love to know, let us know, maybe I'll set up a poll of, like, if this, if you knew about 
a lot about this case before we started posting about it because I'm just curious on Instagram. So follow us on Instagram. We're always posting updates and stuff there. We also, Olivia, made a public Instagram to follow us on because a lot of people have said that they kind of want to put like faces to the voices or, you know, some of you guys have followed us for a long time. So it's kind of like we're we're all friends. We're all besties. Um, <laughs> I just put out my regular Instagram because I don't have anything to hide. <laughs> so <laughs> both of our Instagrams are um, linked in the True Crime Society bio on Instagram. So if you want to follow us there, my username is stephsum underscore S-T-P-H-S-U-M underscore. And Olivia's is TCS Olivia. Spelled T C S O L I V I A. <laughs> if you couldn't figure it out, <laughs> we have our our forum at truecrimesociety.com that we post on. You can have usernames; it's more anonymous. If you want to check that out, lots of stuff to read on there. Um, if you haven't left us a rating yet on Spotify, you could do that. Also on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review. If you haven't done that, please do. And as always share on instagram on facebook on anything just share the podcast if you like it try to help us out help us grow our audience a little bit and we always greatly appreciate it i feel like i did a really bad job this time at the ending i'm very tired so i'm sorry but you guys you guys know what to do we're, we're here every week saying the same thing yeah if you're ever not sure you can always just go to our instagram too and there's links to absolutely everything there so if you can't remember something go there check it out Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with another tragic tale, I'm sure. Yes. Have a good week. Bye. See ya.